All right, we'll be reading from Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all of your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to imagine that you are on the eve of a critically important decision or like a momentous occasion in your life where it's the kind of thing that could literally make or break you. And so you imagine that tomorrow you have a doctor's visit or tomorrow you have a a medical test or you get the results of a medical test or tomorrow you go in for a big sales pitch or a presentation at your company or tomorrow you're taking a big test in school like maybe the the bar or something on that level or a final exam, or tomorrow you're walking into an HR meeting or a board meeting where you know already someone's being let go, okay? And all of you have probably had this kind of meeting before. All of you will probably have this kind of meeting again. Again, whether it deals with your academic life, your vocational life, your physical health, your marriage or other relationships, we have these kinds of eaves where we're struggling to sleep because of how important this thing tomorrow is and how it will direct our future one way or another. And my question for you, and maybe you even think of a specific example that's been recent or something that's coming up, my question is, in that night of your prayers, what is your functional hope? And what is your functional strength? As you look forward to facing this thing tomorrow, what are you functionally leaning on and saying, this is what's going to get me through. This is how I know I'm going to be okay. This particular psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 20, and this is critical to understanding everything that you just read. It's not just another psalm, just another random prayer. This is a prayer for a king on the eve of battle. And you'll make sense of this whole thing, and once you see it, you'll, you'll go back and read it and be like, ah, this, this makes so much sense. If you make sense of the pronouns here, it makes sense of the whole story. So who is the we or us that is praying essentially this entire psalm? It is the congregation of Israel. To put it differently, it's the covenant people of God together, and they're saying we are praying for this other person. Who is this other person? Who is this you? God, we pray that you would have this success. We pray that you would be treated this way. The you is that king that they're praying for. And who is the he? We pray that he would do this for you. The he is God. So it's we or us as a congregation are praying to God for the king. And I want to 
think of this kind of like as a, this is like a horizontal prayer. Um, what I mean is you'll see eight times in this short psalm, you see something like, may the Lord or may he. And that's a way of saying we're praying to God, but we're saying it right in front of the king. So it's like, may the Lord answer your prayer is a way of, essentially, you're telling the king, I'm praying for you that the Lord would answer your prayer, but I'm praying it in front of you. So you hear this. And um, you, you may not start phrases like that where you're like, may you, but as you get together with friends or family or your gospel community group and you're praying for someone who's sitting right there, this is the language of praying for someone who's sitting right there. Okay, And that's how we make sense of this whole psalm. And this, this one big idea, and then four points, and then we'll unpack this together. Big idea is that God saves his people through his anointed king. And that's why they're praying for him. And actually, that's the first piece you see here, these, these four Ps. There's a prayer, and it's an extended prayer. And we'll look at a couple different specific petitions. They're saying, God, do this for the king, and do this for the king, and do this for the king. But it starts with a prayer, and then you have a prophecy and then you have a profession, and then you have a picture, okay? So let's go through those four things, a prayer. And as I just said, the, the prayer is kind of latched on to these eight phrases where you see, may the Lord or may he, because he's saying, may God do these things. And I think these, these things that they're praying for fall into three categories or three big buckets. The first is a petition for safety, Okay, so looking at verse 1, may the Lord answer you. Congregation, may the Lord answer you, king, as you pray on the eve of battle. May the Lord answer you in that day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Okay, that's why I say it's a prayer for safety. This, this protect you is a very interesting word because it's related to the word for exalting someone or lifting someone up. And you can picture it like this. Um, we've all seen footage on TV at some point or another or on a news website or something of like an area of our country that's been hit by a hurricane or a flash flood. And you know that as that flash flood, the waters just sweep through and are just destroying things in their path, the way to safety is you've, you've got to get to high ground. You've got to move. You've got to, in a sense, you've got to be exalted. You've got to get up. And I've seen all these, these videos of like hurricanes that hit the Gulf Coast or something like that. And people you know, just littered on their rooftops. They've like swam out of their houses and gotten up on their roofs and are waiting for some kind of like boat or helicopter to come around and rescue them. Interestingly enough, that's, that's this word. Like God has set you on high. Or even thinking of a battle instead of the, like the, the floodwaters and all that sort of thing, you think of like the high ground as the easier ground to defend. So you're, you're on the high ground and you can see your enemy and they're having to come up towards you. And that's this prayer. Lord, you're keeping your king safe by lifting him up and giving him the high ground. Going on in verse 2, may he, so that's may the Lord send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. And the picture is the sanctuary is like the holy place and Zion is like that's where the temple is going to be built in Jerusalem. And the people in those days would, like literally, they would turn wherever they are and different times of the day they would pray toward 
Zion or pray toward Jerusalem, symbolic of like, God, you've put your presence there in the midst of your people, and we're praying toward you. We're praying toward your presence. We're relying on you for the safety. This is kind of like King Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8, where he says, if your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for my name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. So it's the same kind of prayer. Like we're, we're praying toward this place. We realize you're the God in heaven. You're the God over all and you're in all and through all. But we're praying toward this place symbolic of this promise that you will assist, you'll strengthen, you'll, you'll refresh, you'll sustain your king. Verse 3, going on with this petition for safety. May he, may the Lord, remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. And I want to tell you two things that this isn't and one thing that it is. This is not self-righteous moralism of like, God, we just want you to remember my sacrifices. You know, like, I've done a lot for you. I've made offerings to you. You should remember that and reward me in battle. This isn't that. He's not praying it on his own behalf. Like, God, remember me and remember how good I've been and remember my generous offerings and sacrifices to you. It's not that. They're praying for their king. But this also is not just this, this ancient pagan ritual of they would go in and they would burn all kinds of things on the eve of battle to basically appease their gods, little g, they had all these idols, and they're like, we, we don't know which one controls the battle tomorrow, so to hedge our bets, we're going to make sacrifices to all of them. We're going to appease all of them, and then hopefully we have success tomorrow. That's not that either. The fact is, the king is simply doing what God commanded all of the covenant people who believed in Yahweh to do. So basically what, he, what the people are saying of the king is the king is not protesting his innocence. He's not ignoring or excusing or relabeling his sin. The fact that the king has this pattern in his life of bringing offerings and bringing burnt offerings, like things that are wholly consumed, is the recognition, like, I've sinned and my sin bears a tremendous cost. And the only way that my sin is forgiven or covered or atoned for is that I bring an innocent creature and this innocent thing is sacrificed for my sin and God sees it and forgives me. So they're saying, God, we want you to remember our king. Our king knows he's a sinner. Our king lives in a pattern of, again, not not hiding his sin or excusing his sin, but our king lives in a pattern of saying, "If, if the way to be safe with God is to confess our sin and to bring it in the open, and say, Lord, forgive, they're saying, God, that, that's what he's done. And they're basically praying, God, make our king safe in another way, not just in battle tomorrow, but make our king safe in relationship with you, where you see not only his sin, but you see the covering, you see the forgiveness, you see the cleansing, and make him safe with you. Be a refuge of grace to our king. Okay, so that's a petition for safety. Now, starting in verse 4, you have a petition for success. He says, may he, may God grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your plans. In verse 7, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. And again, that's why it's so important to keep it in context. This is a prayer for the king on the eve of battle. So in context, the king's plans, just to be clear, 
our battle plans. Like he has sat down with his advisors, his counselors, his generals, and they've said, okay, here's the plan for the defense of God's people. God's people are being attacked, perhaps by the Philistines or someone like that. And I have a responsibility as the king to protect the people of God. So I've drawn up plans. And they're saying, God, bless his plans. Okay? So I would say that's the context of this prayer. Psalm 20 is not the place to go and be like, oh, sweet, bless, bless all the desires of my heart. Right? And, and you may have even found yourself praying that before. Like, just, Lord, just bless all the desires of my heart. Grant all the desires of my heart. Um, theologically, there's not much to commend the notion that all the desires of your heart are good or are worth granting or that God's actually going to do that. And I think even with a little bit of maturity, you look back and you're like, I so wanted God to do this thing in this previous version of me. And I prayed and prayed and I desired it for a long time and I begged God to give it to me. And in hindsight, God didn't. In hindsight, I can see God was wise not to give that to me. God was wise not to do that for me because he developed in me like a rigorous trust. He developed in me a contentment with who he is instead of just the things he could give me. So this isn't a generic like, God, just give him everything that pops into his mind. It is God, he's going out and he needs success in battle or we as your people are going to fail. And then you have, thirdly, a petition for salvation. Verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of God set up our banners. If you're like, what is, what is that about? Set up banners. Well, next time you're in ball arena, okay, I want you to look up in the rafters. And what do you see? Well, there's the American flag and there's the Canadian flag. And then around, there are the retired jersey numbers of several Avalanche players and Nuggets players. But most importantly, what's hanging from the rafters, and the point of this illustration is, there it says, Colorado Avalanche, 1996 Stanley Cup champions, 2001 Stanley Cup champions, 2022 Stanley Cup champions. This fall, I'm sure when the Nuggets go back to play, they will lift a banner into the rafters that say, Denver Nuggets 2023 NBA World Champions. And the idea of that banner that's still hanging there all those years later is there was a competition, there was a battle, so to speak, and we won. Okay? We still do what's talked about here. Is they're saying, God, we, we shout for joy over your salvation. We're praying you, you deliver your king. And, and as you do that, we're not only going to rejoice, but we're going to lift banners over your people saying, God won. And we're going to leave it there as a reminder for generations to come, God granted salvation. Let's look at that theme of salvation for just a moment. So verse 5 and I'd circle these in your Bible because, like, it'll jump out at you when you see it. Verse 5, salvation. Verse 6 and 9, save or saves. Verse 6, saving. Okay? So you've got two nouns and a verb. You've got Yeshua, you've got Yasa, and you've got Yesa. And the basic idea of all three of those words is deliverance or rescue. It is, I'm in some kind of peril, I'm in some kind of bondage or slavery or situation that I can't get myself out of, and I'm crying on you, God, will you, as I started out, will you lift me up from the place of danger and set me in a place of safety? Will you save me like that? And it's fitting 
that on the eve of warfare, the people are praying this for their king. Like, God, would you save us from the oppression of our enemies? Will you save us from fear? Will you save us from injustice? Will you save us from the doubts that we keep experiencing? Like, are, are you good? Are you God? Are you in control? Because things are not going well, and we're living under the constant threat of slavery, of, of injury, and of death. Will you save us from all of that? And so salvation in this context, like, almost like in a sporting context, the idea of salvation is victory. We have victory and release from all of these existential threats. And victory is what the people have in mind when they pray this climactic line in verse 9. By the way, this is where it comes from. Like, God save the king or God save the queen. This, oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. They're saying, may he, God, answer us when we call to rescue, to deliver, to give victory to your king. So that's this prayer. Okay? And again, you've got this prayer for safety. You've got this prayer for success, and you've got this prayer for salvation. Now notice this. Second point is a prophecy. But notice it's a prophecy of victory, that they're not just praying, God, we're wringing our hands. We don't know what you're going to do. Verse 6, a prophecy of victory. They say, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. And it's important to remember this battle hasn't started yet. There's a sense in which you could say the people have no idea how this battle is going to go tomorrow and the next day and the next day and however long this battle continues. But before a single soldier suits up, the people of God are saying the battle belongs to the Lord. Like he will answer somehow. He will show up in power somehow. That's this metaphor of the right hand, like the the left hand would be like a defense, a shield. The right hand is the arm of strength, the arm of the sword, the arm of the spear. And they're saying God will show up in strength. God will fight for us. God will rescue his anointed. And I want to park on that word anointed for a moment because it's a key to this particular psalm. So backing up to this period of time in the Old Testament, a number of specific people were anointed, like literally someone would come to them, take a cruise of oil, and pour it over their head. And it was symbolic of God has chosen you, and God has set you apart for some specific role or some specific task. So the priests of Israel were anointed over the head. Um, Elisha, the prophet, was anointed by Elijah, saying, you're set apart for a prophetic ministry. This king that the prayer is about, King David, if you go back to 1 Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel shows up, looks at all the sons and says, like, uh, God wants to anoint one of your sons to be the next king of Israel, but somehow it's none of these guys. Do you, do you not have another son? And the father's like, well, I mean, there's, there's the kid out in the field with the sheep, like the shepherd. Um, and he says, that, that's the one. Anoint him. Like, I've chosen him, and I've set him apart. And Samuel the prophet, in 1 Samuel 16, anoints the head of King David. Or, you know, not yet King David. It's actually going to be 15 years later that David actually becomes king, and Israel recognizes him as king. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm belaboring this point because my, the idea here is the anointed was called 
by God and literally anointed with oil. And that anointing is like you're set apart to represent God in a special task. But here's another important thing. And with that anointing comes God's special protection. If you are the anointed, God has a plan for you. And nothing's going to happen to you until God fulfills his plan through you. Now, why is that important? Why am I saying this? Because you, you see the people praying, we know, verse 6, we know that the Lord saves his anointed. And this is interesting. So on the eve of battle, who are the people praying for? The king, the anointed. Who do they believe is going to get rescued? The king, the anointed. I don't know about you, but if I know that like me and, and my people are on the eve of a great battle where there will be death and bloodshed, I might be thinking, like, God, save me, save my family, save, save my friends, save my community. But their whole focus is God, save the king. Why is that? Well, you may know that in ancient warfare, the thing that mattered was not how, how does the army fare. The thing that mattered was how does the king fare, right? So it, it's a little bit like warfare by proxy. You, you kill someone's king and their armies surrender. You don't get to their king and you're just going to keep shedding blood and you're going to keep fighting. It's kind of like in chess. Like you, you never thought about this before, but you'll never think of chess the same way. And you'll all as followers of Jesus want to go learn how to play chess. Because you have 16 pieces. You got the pawns and the rooks and the knights and the queen and the king and all these pieces. And how do you win chess? How do you lose chess? I mean, it doesn't matter if you got all 15 other pieces on the board, if the opponent gets your king, you lost. If you get their king, you win. That's the whole game. It's a picture of ancient warfare. See, the king represented his people. The king stands there, and he's, he's just this one figure, and David in particular was anointed by God to be that figure, but it's like his fortunes represent the fortunes of all the covenant people of God. You capture the king, you capture the people. You save the king, you save the people. Uh, by the way, in the more familiar story than this of like David versus Goliath, that's exactly what's going on. It's, it's warfare by proxy. Do you remember that this giant Philistine, Goliath, comes and he's taunting the armies of Israel and he's saying, send out your best warrior to me and we will fight one-on-one. -on -one. And if he kills me, the Philistines are yours. But if I kill him, all the armies of Israel, all the people of Israel, the Jews, they fall and they become our captives. Which is why it was so important that God worked through whom? His anointed, David, to win this battle. Therefore, the people of God win. So how can the people know in advance? Because this is a prophecy how do they know in advance that God's anointed is going to be victorious? And I'll just open a cheat sheet for you, okay? Um, because he's God's anointed, and that's what happens. God's anointed ultimately wins. God's favor is through the anointed. God's favor is through this king. And they know and they trust God 
God will do whatever it takes for this anointed figure to be victorious, which leads us to point three, which is a profession, and specifically in verse seven and eight, this is a profession of trust. So notice this, and some of you know these verses. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And it's fascinating, again, that, again, this battle has not started, but the people are absolutely confident of victory. They're speaking in the past tense about a future event and saying, they, they fell, they were crushed, we rise, we stand and remain upright. Verse 7, I love this. Um, you know, their enemies are coming to them on the battlefield. And they're like, they trust in their horses and they trust in their chariots. And, you know, months and months and months of battle-hard training happened for these horses in ancient warfare just to, like, steal their, like, psyche of these horses, to put these blinders on and to, like, just charge into battle and just be absolutely fearless in the face of weapons and steel. And, you know, there weren't gunshots back then, but various kinds of explosions. They just charge into battle and like, we have trained our war horses and they are fast and they are furious. And look at our chariots. We have crafted them with this armor and they are fast and they are maneuverable. And there's no way these armies of Israel, just these men on foot with slings and stones, are going to do anything to us. That's our confidence, is in our weaponry, in our armament. We've got this. And they're like, hey, by contrast, God, they trust in that. We trust in your name. And it's fascinating here. The, the word trust actually is, in the Hebrew, it's the word remember. And it's in a tense that's like, we continually remember the name of the Lord. They trust in chariots and horses. We continually remember the name of the Lord, our God. And his name is Yahweh. And they're saying, we continually remember everything that his name represents, the history of walking with us and delivering us in the Exodus and leading us through the river and the, the sea and, and, and giving us his commands and fighting for us and clearing away for us and giving this land that he promised us. We remember all of that. We call it to mind we have hope. And so I go back to this illustration that I began with because none of you are in a literal battle that I know of right now in the sense of like it's warfare. But you have battles going on in your life and you have big, important, decisive things going on in your lives. And my question is, I don't doubt that you don't functionally trust in horses and chariots unless you're like betting or something. Um, what is your functional hope? What would you say, like, oh, yeah. Am I, am I right now in this moment, in, in, in the midst of my fear and my anxiety and my angst, my frustration, my doubt, my, my playing it out in my mind of, like, it could go like this, and then here's what I would do, and I play it out like this, and that, that's, that's what, how I would respond, or this, and, like, I don't know, and you're up all night, and you're frazzled. And my question is, what is that functional hope that you're looking to? What is the thing that makes you think, if I have this, I'll be okay? If I study a little bit more, if I have money, I'll be okay. If I have a good doctor or a good prescription or this drug, I'll be okay. If I have a therapist who has their act together, I'll be okay. If I have a spouse, I'll be okay. 
if I have a routine, if I have a strategy. You ever do that? You're playing it out in your mind. You're like, okay, I'm going to go and have this conversation. I'm going to crush this conversation. And HR was going to let me go. But they're like, wow, you have swayed us and you are the best. In fact, we're promoting you to lead the team. And we can even rely on like, I've played it out. I've thought about it. I have wisdom that I'm bringing to the situation. And hopefully you do. But what is your functional trust? And before we even get to the final point here in this message, a big impact for all of us is just to say, what is my functional hope? As I'm going into conflict in my life, as I'm going into major decisions in my life, as things are beyond my control with what that doctor is going to say about that scan that they did, what am I hoping in? And am I hoping in a God who says, I'm everything for you? We will remember the name of the Lord our God. And by the way, this is the Israel who could go up against a fierce and awesome adversary with the horses and with the chariots. And they're going with 300 guys that have pitchers, like pitchers of water and trumpets. And they're like, uh, wait, what? God, we had, we had thousands in our army and you, you told them to go home to their families and we thought you would at least train us under Gideon for some kind of battle. And you're like, okay, everybody got your pitchers and your trumpets, let's go. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. So it doesn't matter what's in your hand, it matters what's in God's hand. And they're learning, I think, generation after generation, okay, can we trust this God? Can we put our confidence in him and rely on him? And that's a super important lesson for us is that we, we check in with ourselves in the sense of like, God, am I functionally trusting you? Are you my hope right now? Are you, even as I prepare for this meeting and prepare for this test and prepare for this conversation, am I trusting what that doctor is going to say or am I trusting that you are good, that you are in control? And are you confessing, God, when I see that my life is not resting on you, remembering you, Lord, I confess that and I give that to you and I'm saying, will you help me to know you more so that I can trust you more. That's this profession of trust. Now, the most amazing thing about this psalm is this fourth point, a picture. And I'll just, I'll tell you because we're there. It's, it's a picture of Christ. It is a picture of Jesus Christ. Because I come back to the central truth that the congregation, the people, you know, it wasn't called the church back then because Jesus hasn't come yet. But that, let's see, it's a predecessor to the church. It's the covenant people of God who are walking in faith and walking in obedience and making sacrifices for their sin. And they're repenting and they're trusting and they're repenting and they're trusting. But it, it all comes down to, like, how do we know we're safe? Well, because we're praying for the anointed on the eve of battle. And if the Lord favors his anointed, then the Lord favors us and we have the deliverance. So let me, let me point out something else about this word anointed that shows up in our text here. It's the Hebrew word Mashiach, which you may hear the English word Messiah. So when, he's, when, when the congregation is saying, we pray for the anointed, that the anointed would have your favor, they're praying, would the Mashiach, would the Messiah have your favor? Now, building on that, what's really fascinating when you get to the Greek language that the New Testament is written in, do you know the Greek word for anointed is the word Christos? Christ. And it's fascinating to me that as 
The people are praying for the king. They're, they're literally trusting God for the Yeshua, salvation, through the Christos. And I just remind you, I mean, it's, it's, it's explicitly there on the surface. It's just like, I'm going to send my son, Jesus the Christ. Jesus is his name. Yeshua is his name. Christ is his title. It is Jesus the Messiah. It is Jesus the anointed son of God. And as, as these people are saying, we're just entering a battle. Again, maybe against the Philistines tomorrow. Maybe, Lord, if you favor your Messiah, we all win. If you don't favor your Messiah, well, we all lose, but, but you're not going to do that because he's your anointed. He's the Christos. You favor him, okay? And this is really, really powerful when you think about it, that generations before God sent his son into the world as Jesus of Nazareth, these people are recognizing our hope of salvation is bound up in how Yahweh treats the anointed. We will be rescued if Yahweh accepts the sacrifice of the anointed. We will die if Yahweh does not accept the sacrifice of the anointed. And then you fast forward to the life of Jesus and you see how this points us to the hope of the gospel because we all have things that we need to be rescued from, that we need to be delivered from, that we need to be saved from, to use that term. And, and there, are those, there are those life events there, there, is, there are those health things, those financial things, those relationship things. And it's not wrong to pray, like, God, would you deliver me from this? But, but big picture, spiritually, we all need to be rescued from our own sin, our own guilt, our own shame. And the consequences that fall on people who don't do the law of God very well. And this is what we're encouraged to do with this psalm. Is that we don't, we don't look at ourselves. Again, we don't look what's in our hand. Well, I trust in my sword, my spear. I got this. I got this battle. We, we look at what's in God's hand. We look at who God is sending and who God is anointing. And we say, I trust that where I am not powerful enough, or I don't have the resources to defeat my sin, the anointed one has the resources to defeat my sin. Where I don't have the resources to overcome the adversary, like satanic adversaries that are real, that are invisible to us, but are wreaking mayhem, the anointed has the resources to deal with the devil. Where I don't have the resources to overcome physical death, let alone spiritual death, the anointed has the resources to overcome death, the final enemy to be defeated, Paul says. So it's really powerful to go back through this psalm now and see how it ultimately points to Jesus. It's almost like the congregation, now the church is gathered, and we say... Jesus, may the Lord answer you. May the Father answer you. May the Father deliver you. May the Father accept your sacrifice. God, save Jesus, the King. And I'll close with this paradox. When Jesus actually comes, it's really powerful to see this as the story fleshes out in the Gospels. Because to the degree that anyone, like the disciples, believe that is God's anointed, that is the true Messiah, and then they see him bleeding and dying on a cross, and he's crying out, not, uh, Father, thank you for coming and answering me and rescuing me. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And the disciples could be sitting there being like, how is this possible? Like this is the king on a cross and he's crying out and there's no answer for him. The father has abandoned him. He was our hope. He was our deliverer. Like we believed he was the son of God. And their dreams all come crashing to the ground. And you, you have some sympathy for them like in those days before the resurrection of like, we thought he was the one. But if he had been the one, how could the father ever let that happen to him? The father didn't answer. The father didn't rescue him. He died. But then we ultimately understand the father did regard the sacrifice of Jesus, which was the offering not of something else innocent, the Passover lamb. Let's, let's kill another lamb. Let's eat another lamb. Let's burn the entrails and all that. No, Jesus is coming saying, Father, I am the sacrifice. I'm crawling up on the altar and I'm offering myself for the sins of my people for all time, every single area of brokenness, healed, restored, cleansed. And when Jesus walks out of his own tomb on Easter morning, that is the Father saying, I regard his sacrifice. I accept him. I favor him. Now, instead of you looking to your own resources, your own strength, your own hope, or looking to money or that job or a certain answer from a doctor or a therapist or a life coach or an HR person, you're looking ultimately to Jesus and saying, King Jesus, would you give me eyes for you to focus on you? To, to in a sense, go back to Psalm 20 and pray this, realizing it's pointing me to you, that it's not this American mentality of, if I win, I win. But it's only if Christ wins do I win. And Christ won. Amen.